This is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Welcome back to another episode of the Stigma Podcast. I am really honored to be here today with Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. She is a she's really a pioneer in the field of understanding sex addiction and and what healthy sexual activity is. Uh, she's a, a marriage and family therapist. She's a certified sex addiction therapist. She's has her own clinic uh, called the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. Um, she's a fellow at the Meadows Treatment Center in Arizona, which in full disclosure is the treatment center that I went to in 2018. However, I, I did not meet her when I was there. And she has written numerous books on the topics of sex addiction, erotic intelligence, the neurobiology of sex addiction, intimacy, and other topics related to the space. And I, I will link to all of those books. I will link to all of her, her website and how you can connect with her in the show notes. But without further ado, I just wanted to say welcome and, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. And as you know, and as my audience mostly knows, you know, I've, I've struggled with sexual acting out in my life and I struggled for a really long time. I attend a, a Sex Addicts Anonymous meeting every Tuesday night here in Dallas where I live. Of all of my addiction recovery groups, it's hands down far and away the best group that I am a part of. And I, I have so many things I want to ask you, so many things I want to share with the public or have you highlight to the public about this topic. And if I ask, ask a bad question, just you know, steer me <laughs> in the right direction. But I think a good place to start, unless you suggest otherwise, is what, what is sex addiction and, and what is healthy sex? And is it, a, is, a, is it a sort of like a bipolar spectrum or how do you even define sex addiction? Well, that's a good question. I mean, people have been trying to answer that question for really since the beginning of time, practically, but in more modern times since the 70s, I would say. And, um, and Patrick Carnes came up with the definition in 1983, of course, in his book, Out of the Shadows. So I, you know, there's a lot of debate in the academic field about whether you can be addicted to sex or if you're more you know, compulsive with the behavior. So there is some splitting in the camps of how we think about this. But when I think about the word addiction, I think about a strong predilection for something. Uh, because we say that we're addicted to any number of things today, our phones, our yoga classes, I mean, you name it. And so when you have a strong predilection for something and it starts to tip into what they call unmanageability in Alcoholics Anonymous, or you start to have messes in your life, then you probably have, quote, an addiction. But the addiction itself, I mean, that, that word itself is pointing to a whole host of behavioral problems, cognitive problems in terms of negative thoughts. And I think more importantly, adaptive strategies that are more neurobiological. So there are a whole host of factors that come together to create what we call, quote, addiction when it comes to behavior. So that's, that's really helpful to understand as far as the addiction goes. You know, how did, maybe a good follow up there is, you know, how does somebody, 
is it fair to ask how does someone become a sex addict? I mean, where is where is the line? How do you how do you identify if you have a problem or if your sexual behavior is healthy? I mean, well, I think what we do know is that shame is the engine that drives a lot of quote addictions and certainly when it comes to sex whether it's you know compulsive pornography viewing or um, compulsively having sex with people that you don't like that you feel grossed out by that make you feel shamed or dirty or bad afterwards and so one of the things i think we do in treatment there's a whole myriad of things that we do but we really look at people's shame-based messages they got about sex and sexuality early on uh, because this problem is a problem of, I think, regulation, meaning how anxious is the person, how depressed are they, how much do they use uh, sex or pornography to manage their anxiety, and how much of it is based in shameful messages they received as a child about sex and sexuality. If your thought is or you're told that sex is bad, dirty, or wrong, then that behavior is going to go underground, meaning it's going to be done in secret. And when something secretive or shaming or abusive, it's likely in the realm of addiction. So shame is an enormous part of the engine that drives these adaptive, compulsive, habituated, problematic sexual behaviors. Where does the shame come from? How do we, when is it in our lives that we, if, if we can know, first feel shame? Well, the shame is built into the autonomic nervous system. It's in the gut. It's in the enteric nervous system. And human beings are biologically coded for shame. I think in a way this is um, evolutionary and it's considered to be a pro-social function. And scholars have written about shame dynamics uh, for a very long time when looking at the mother-infant dyad. And I say mother-infant in quotation marks, we know that there are other primary caregivers that aren't just female. But when the infant starts to move away from its mother, when it starts to toddle away, the minute that happens, there's a separation between the infant and the mother because the first year is a symbiotic, um, sometimes thought of as an out-of-body pregnancy between the two because the infant's so reliant. But as it starts to move into space, the mother now for the first time becomes an object of and a source of protection via shaming. So for example, if a child goes to put its hand on a hot stove and it looks back at the mother with a big smile on its face. It's in a highly, what we call a highly valence, excitatory, high dopamine state. And that child is looking for mirroring back from the mother that says, yay, I see you. But instead, she has a look of horror on her face. And she points to the oven and she looks at the baby in the face and she says, no. And the baby in that moment is deeply shamed. What was previously thought going, the child thought it was going to get a reflection back of how fantastic it was. Right. Um, now it's getting a reflection back that it's wrong or what it's doing is wrong. So that dopamine crashes almost instantaneously. The baby starts to cry because it goes into an arousal state and a good mother goes and rescues the baby from the oven and she repairs in that moment saying, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. And the child has learned in that moment that that stove, that hot stove is off limits and it shouldn't do that. And it, it, it's done through the process of shame. 
Now, when that shame is chronic and it's not repaired and it's egregious and it borders on, you know, the cruel and sadistic, then you've got a much uh, deeper problem on your hands and someone who's going to hate themselves, feel horrible about themselves and you know, who knows what will happen to that child. But a good enough mother and parent is always repairing the rupture when they say no to their child. What has happened to us as a species or as a population to where we've gotten to the point where we're just not good at that as parents? I mean, is it is it technology? Is it the size of the population? Is it is it something else? I mean, it just seems like we're getting, I don't know, I'm just sticking my finger in the air and guessing it's like we're getting worse at raising children to not have these problems. Well, I don't know. I mean, these are now, this is the sort of socio-political um, and cultural part of addiction because it's a neuropsychosocial biological problem. And so parents are very beleaguered today. We mostly have two working people in a household um, sometimes they're single parent households. The parent says no, and they're beleaguered and they're angry and they don't repair with the child. Um, they're short with the child. That really leaves the child hanging out to dry and it leaves it feeling that it's not good enough or it's bad or it's dirty or wrong because that's the impact of shame. And then if sex is shamed, for example, a parent you know, catches a child masturbating or looking at pornography, and there's no conversation about it. Instead, the message is, you know, that's gross or disgusting, meaning you're gross or disgusting, then that child is going to go forward, not feeling confident about being sexual at all, because sex means gross and disgusting. So they start to do it in isolation, in private, with porn, with people that are degrading or hurtful to them. And then you get the making of what we call a quote, sex addict. That's that's pretty interesting to me. How can, maybe if this is two questions, at what age and how can someone or can someone's behavior be kind of flagged or be observed to be leading to sex addiction? How early could we know this person might need a little bit of help with that? Well, I think that's a very difficult thing to say in teenage years. I think in retrospect, when somebody is 30, 35, 40, 50 years old, and they're looking at a history of sexual destruction, if you will, they can pinpoint when this first started. But when we are talking about teenagers who are experimenting with sex and sexuality and trying on all different sorts of hats and things, I mean, we've all had experiences ourselves of you know, wearing kind of certain kind of clothing or dyeing our hair or doing all sorts of kooky things <clears throat> as we went through phases of experimentation and development. So when kids are looking at a lot of porn or they're masturbating or they're having sex, it's difficult. Um, and when I say kids, I'm talking about people in their teenage years. It, it's hard to label that person a quote, sex addict. I don't think it's a great idea. I think it's much more interesting to be curious with that teenager about what they're doing, why they're doing it, what it does for them, and opening a conversation uh, that is shame reducing rather than, you know, reductive and blaming. Is there a red flag of, of sorts for adults, maybe for, for people in their 30s and beyond that, you know, that something that someone listens to this show and, they, and they, something comes up for them and they think, you know, maybe I should think about that before I get so far down the road that it causes me to, to end up in a, a really destructive place. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, there are criteria for sex addiction and um, what's now being called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And they are basically things like, you know, spending much more time than you had intended to on the sexual behavior, uh, sort of privileging your sexual behavior over social, occupational, filial, or domestic obligations. So you're always putting sex before everything else. Continuing the behavior despite negative consequences. So maybe you've been arrested or maybe you just cannot keep a relationship because you're always cheating. That would be a good sign that you probably have a problem. Preoccupation also, if you're always only ever thinking about sex or getting into the sexual experience or spending inordinate amounts of time preparing for the sexual experience, you know, you're always online, you're always looking, cruising setting something up, and it's interfering with your life, then you probably have a problem. But there are online tests that people can take, you know, certainly on my website, centerforhealthysex.com, uh, there's a drop down menu that says test yourself that really just gives you an idea if you're kind of on the on ramp or the freeway. And, you know, if you think you have a problem, you should seek help and find out, you know, having a, a conversation with a, you know, reliable professional. Yeah. I think I probably took your test or one like it when I showed up at the Meadows. Mm-hmm. I think it was like, uh, there was one that was like 20 questions or something like that sure. on the first days. And I should remember checking uh, yes to all the boxes. One of my big, big revelations in my first week at, at rehab was how did you know? Like my, mm-hmm. my psychiatrist, she pegged me. She finished my sentences in my first meeting. Wow. You know, my, my group, my group therapist just nailed it from day one. I mean, it just almost like they knew me, like they expected me to be there. And then I realized they've had me walk through the door a thousand times. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, You're not unique. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not unique at all. In that way. In that way. In that way. Yeah. Right. And so I think the point of what you're saying, Stephen, that's important for people to hear, because when people are engaged in any kind of addiction, it's so isolating, it's so shameful, it's really difficult to understand that other people share your problem too. This is Mm -hmm. not unique to you. And that's why, you know, we've been looking at this problem now for decades and professionals that are in agreement that, quote, sex addiction really does exist, sees these constellations over and over and over again. That's why you felt pegged and seen and known, because so many people have walked before you with this problem, which is what helps us have effective treatment for it. So you mentioned decades there uh, that we've been talking about it. I'm curious about the history of sex addiction and and not necessarily, I I assume that this has been a problem for humans for for about thousands of years or longer, but how long have we been talking about it and have people been researching it? What's sort of the history of the conversation, if you will? Well, um, I write about this in my book, Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation. Um, It's in the first chapter where I do an exhaustive history um, and looking at sexuality from the beginning of time when it comes to compulsive and problematic behaviors. But in our more contemporary time, it was really in 1983 when Pat Carnes, you know, put this notion on the map, but he borrowed this idea from John Money, who was at John Hopkins University, who was looking at paraphilic or kinky behavior that was compulsive. And Carnes looked at non-kinky behavior that was compulsive. And he was not from the world of sex therapy. He wasn't a sexologist. And he kind of barged into the sex therapy world and said, hey, I think sex can be an addiction. And he was really lambasted and um, verbally 
assaulted both in print and in person by the sexologist who felt very threatened by this idea. Because we had just come out of a period where homosexuality was pathologized as a mental illness. Mm. And the sexologists were very, very protective, and many remain so, about uh, pathologizing sex. So their stance is anything you do is okay, as long as you're okay with it, and you don't feel shame about it. For them, it's the shame that's the problem. So they would say, you just normalize the person's sexual behaviors, um, and then they'll be more in their integrity, and they'll likely stop doing it as compulsively. Whereas Karn's model was really an abstinence model, not forever, which is where it was grossly misunderstood and remains so, but saying, hey, why don't you stop this completely for 30, 60, 90 days, and let's get a read on what's going on with your mood, with your sort of life around you, and, and let's look at what's driving this thing. And if you can stop, that's a really good sign. If you can't, you may have a mood disorder of some sort, and let's look at, let's treat that also. Sometimes with people, for example, who are obsessive compulsive, if they get on the right medication, they're no longer sexually compulsive. Hallelujah. Um, for someone else who's got a mood disorder, maybe they have a bipolar disorder and they get on the right medication, they're not as likely to be doing, you know, extreme sexual behaviors. So, we're looking at the entire landscape of the person's life and who they are uniquely. As sex addiction therapists, we are not pigeonholing everybody into one sort of reductive box and saying, you're all alike and we treat you all alike. Um, but we do know what the features are of what we call sex addicts. So that's kind of where the big argument remains. Um, also, the Sex addiction model has been called a sex negative model, which really it can no longer be called a sex negative model because in my own dissertation, I created a sexual health model for people in recovery from sex addiction, which I researched and have all the data on. And I now I created a workbook called Sexual Reflections, which specifically helps people create a sexual health plan for themselves that has them feeling good about themselves. And anything goes on that plan, as long as you don't feel shame about it, and it's not secretive. That's interesting. I think I fall more into the, the Dr. Carnes camp. It might just be because I got socialized by all of his materials at the Meadows for two months. One of the questions I always failed to answer or not fail to answer. One of the questions that I answer a little bit differently than a lot of addicts is, I don't have that many instances in my life where I tried to stop any of my addictions right? because I, I just crashed and burned. I was type, type one bipolar. I was, I was having these just really manic episodes where I was almost killing myself, not intentionally, just mm -hmm. through my behavior. And one of those led me to the meadows and I probably shouldn't have survived it, but I, I, it was someone, someone asked me once, how many times have you tried to quit? And I'm like, what would I, why would I do that? Why would I quit? <laughs> right? <laughs> if you have mania, why would you quit? You just want yeah. to do more, right? I should remember Kathy or my group, <laughs> my red group leader at the Meadows going, how many times have you tried to quit? And I was like, what? Why would right. I do that? <laughs> uh, so funny. Anyway. Right. So you can see for someone like you, a harm reduction model would have only just delayed the inevitable. You would have mm -hmm. kept hurting yourself. Whereas you needed a model that said, you got to stop everything right here and right now. We got to get a read on what's going on here. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you should stop having sex the rest of your life or, you know, there's some puritanical idea about the kind of sex you should have. 
um, all these ideas that get laid on the sex addiction model that are inaccurate. That's that's really interesting. I mean, I for the people listening, you know, when you go to Sex Addicts Anonymous, you 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 build this little table that's a three circle table, and you you put really healthy stuff on the outer circle, and you put yellow light sort of mm, man that raises a red flag for me stuff in the inner circle, and then the very center you put bottom line behaviors that you will not do. And what we spent all of our time talking about is I engaged in a yellow, like a second circle behavior last week. And I think it's because I you know, wasn't going to enough meetings or, or whatever. And that, that's kind of the, how the conversation goes at, at an SAA meeting. And, and the cool yeah. thing about it is we define, I mean, it's not the cool thing about it, but <laughs> the interesting thing about it is, you know, in, in AA, we don't drink. And SAA, it's sort of, you define your bottom line and then you live your life by it. And some people have certain behaviors in their bottom line that others don't. Right. And I think when people, you know, if they do slip or something like that, I think one of the powerful things of the fellowship is that you've got compassionate people around you who know what that's like, and they can support you and say, look, you know, slips and relapses are part of recovery. It's no big deal. You just kind of get back on the horse. Whereas a lot of the the anti-sex addiction people will say that, you know, you're in those meetings and people are just wagging their finger at you, shaming you because you had a slip which couldn't be further from my experience of what people report. I've never felt that in, in my groups. Right. I've never felt anything but just a bunch of guys sitting around being authentic with each other in the most vulnerable kind of way that I've never seen in any other, any other place in my life than in an SAA room. Right. It's a, it's a powerful thing. It really, it, it really is. I agree. And I also think it's a very beautiful and heartening thing to see men that are can sit together in an open-hearted way and be compassionate and loving with each other, um, as opposed to kind of the gross competition that gets put forward in our culture today with men. You know, it's always about proving that you're better or the workplace has become a battlefield. And um, I think in recovery circles, we see much more of men helping each other rather than hurting each other. That brings me to a question I have. I, I don't have the answers, but I, I think there's got to be something going on in our society around how we, how men interact with women, how men interact with each other, how we treat each other in general. There's got to be something going on with the sort of the roles that we put each other in. I, I don't know how to say it. There but, is. Like, like yes. gender, g- there has to be a gender issue going on here. Well, okay. I think this is a big conversation. I'm glad you're bringing it up, Stephen, because this whole thing about, you know, incels, uh, men that are involuntarily celibate and they're angry about it and they're angry at women because of it, hmm. it makes me think that there's something, you know, deeply flawed in our culture where men feel so inadequate or unseen. And with that comes competition with other men and, you know, conversations and insecurity about penis size and performance. And all of that is at play right now. And I don't know where this conversation begins or in what forum, but I think it's super important. In fact, I was talking about, well, I know I was talking about penile enhancement surgery to one of my staff members yesterday because we are a sexuality center and a lot of, we work with a doctor who does a lot of this surgery. He actually invented it. And so we screen people before they do the surgery. And the men coming in for this screening are, you know, in their 20s mostly, and they're all average size penis, like five inches when erect. And all of them say they're doing this for themselves. They want to feel more confident. And a lot of it has to do with how they look in locker rooms. And so that's really about other men looking at other men's penises. And we know that men look at penises 
in porn far more than women do because there are studies that show that. And so I was talking to a staff member here who's in his late 60s. He says, yeah. And when you go into locker rooms today, he said, all the guys have towels wrapped around their waist. And he said, that never used to be the case. Like guys would just walk around in locker rooms, but now everybody's covered up. And I was floored by that. I thought that has to do with everyone checking everyone else out and measuring themselves up against each other and what they see in pornography or magazines or movies. So I think men are really in somewhat of an identity crisis today. Is that what you were pointing to? A little bit that and also just sort of gender equality in a way. I mean, I feel like there's, I I just think that there's got to be something going on there. There's got to be something going on with some men who aren't cool with gender equality and then they, they see society changing and then that causes them a problem because they're not well with themselves. I, I just, there's gotta be something going on there. Well, look, I think, you know, we, as we become more and more populated and overpopulated and there's resource competition, we're going to see people clamoring. We're going to see, you know, that's why we're seeing a lot of just what we're seeing culturally. And so women will get denigrated, or you're going to try to put women back in their place, like get the genie back in the bottle, and uh, people of color out of the way, because we need more resources for those of us who, um, I don't even know how to say this really, but I think that's, I'm just going to stop there uh, before we get too political. And because I think that's what happened is men start feeling threatened at the very core of who they are and what their roles are and what they're supposed to be doing. So it's difficult to share the stage with females and those who are other. Yeah. That's, that's, that just makes me think a lot too. And it's, I know it's a big topic today. Uh, One thing you mentioned was uh, you mentioned a couple things about porn and how men view porn is porn addiction and sex addiction. Where, where's the line between those two? Well, I think they're different. I mean, there are people that will argue that you just absolutely 100% can't be addicted to porn, um, that really it's about shame. And if people stop feeling shameful about what they're looking at and enjoying, then the compulsion will drop away. There are studies that show that the brain lights up in the same way it does with gambling. And those are studies that come out of reputable universities like Cambridge University in England. So depending on what camp you want to look in, you'll have a different answer to that. But what we do know is that, or how we think about this, at least in the sex addiction field, is we think about porn addiction as different than sex addiction. And porn addiction is more of a contemporary problem. So people, because of the access and the affordability, it's free and it's anonymous. Anybody can do it any place, anytime on their phone. Um, that it's very easy for somebody to start to get compulsive about looking at it all the time because it's just there. Whereas classic sex addiction is usually born out of some kind of emotional trauma at the very least, as we've been talking about, or a severe uh, mood disorder. So one of them is, you know, one of them becomes a sex addict because they're in pain. The other one is in pain because they've been using. Hmm pornography. So the the pornography quote addict will start to feel anxious, isolated, alone, and they may not have necessarily felt that way initially. It's just if you put anybody in front of a screen for hours on end, um, and especially if they're masturbating every single day, they're going to get exhausted and start to feel bad about themselves. 
or some people yeah, that's, will. That's interesting. I because I, I hadn't thought a lot about the difference. So that's that's really thought provoking in, in in a lot of ways. And regardless of whether you're struggling with with porn or whether you're struggling with sex or, or whatever it may be, really any addiction, how does somebody get well? You know, so say I've identified the problem. I'm my insurance won't pay for the meadows. I can't afford the whatever the cost is now, and I need help. What do I like? What do I do? What's the process I'm going to go through? Well, I think, you know, for somebody who's got problems with pornography, the first thing they want to do is, you know, put filters on all of their electronics. And if you have to just get rid of your smartphone and get a flip phone so you can make phone calls, period, and create speed bumps for yourself so that you start to dial it back. uh, Because those images are very, very powerful. And they are informing how we have sex and what our ideas are about sex. And that's not necessarily the idea of somebody that you're going to date. And that's where I think things start to break down is that we bring what we see online into relationships with people and they're not congruent with who that person is. And so the idea is to get into relationship with real people, both socially in social circles with friends and to start to date real people that you can have real sex with, not just sex with a computer in your hand. Now, there are supports for that. There are self-help groups online. There's the NoFap movement on the Reddit platform where there are lots and lots of men supporting each other and stopping uh, the use of pornography. And then, of course, there are 12-step meetings. There's Sex and Porn Addicts Anonymous I don't know how big that fellowship is around the country, but we do have it here in LA. And so for pornography, that's the best advice I have. There are also books like The Porn Trap that you can read and understand kind of what's going on for you. There's Gary Wilson's site called Your Brain on Porn, which gives lots and lots of information and resources about pornography addiction. And likewise with sex addiction. There are SAA meetings all over the country. They're even online, but in-person is better because these are problems of isolation and shame. And so you can go to a self-help meeting every day if possible. Um, Read the books and the literature that's out there. Find a good therapist. And even if someone really just has no money and they can get themselves to a pay-what-you-can counseling center to get a counselor support while they work a program, that's doing a lot. And one of the things I know you've, you've written a lot about, and you, you probably can't answer this in, in, in a few seconds, but you know, you've written a lot about self-regulation. And how does that apply here? How does someone get, I guess, exposed to the idea of whether it's meditation or whether it's breathing or whatever it may be? How does someone get exposed to this idea that they can, they can consciously impact uh, their emotional state and regulate themselves? And then how do you start to do that? Well, this is a complicated topic, but I will tell you that there is a study that shows that people change their attachment styles when they attend 12-step meetings over time. And attachment really has to do with regulation. So if somebody is avoidant or they're anxious or they are afraid of relationships in some ways, one of the beauties of the 12-step program is that it's a come-as-you-are program. And when you start to talk to other people, reach out to other people, they reach back to you and you realize that you can get your needs met from other people, uh, that they care, that they will soothe you when they're, you're upset. Um, or when you're struggling, they'll say, let's go get a cup of coffee. That starts to help you regulate. So another human being is regulating your nervous system because you've been doing it through mm-hmm. sex. 
And when you stop doing it through sex, you have to reach towards another human being. And over time, that starts to change uh, your capacity to trust another person and your own nervous system starts to seek out other people when it's going well. That and also a good therapeutic relationship will be one of the best ways for people to start to experience co-regulation. So eventually they are more internally regulated themselves. Things like mindfulness practices are very helpful. They're different though, because that's really an internal practice, but it's effective. So it's not really one or the other. I think it's a both and situation is that we need other human beings. We are socially gregarious creatures. An infant will die if it is not attended to and brought to fruition by an adult. And so we need human beings to feel good and happy and alive in life. And we have to reach out to other people. And learning a mindfulness practice is very valuable, as is exercise and eating well. And uh, I, I know we don't have a lot of time left, and there's a there's a really important topic I want to bring up around stigma, and, and, and I know it relates to what we've been talking about around shame. I feel like my personal experience, when I got my one-year chip in SAA, I came home and I tweeted about it and I put it on my Facebook and I was terrified. I bet. I thought, I, I was just like, I'm going to do this because I think I, I really want to help reduce stigma, but man, I am terrified to do this. Uh-huh. When I came home from my one-year meeting at A and I, put my, I took a little photo of my chip and I put it on social media, I couldn't do it fast enough. Why the difference? I mean, I, I, uh-huh, I, I, yeah. there's an obvious basic thing here around shame and how society views sex addiction. But, sure. You know, why is the gap so big and what can we do about it? Well, I think this goes back to this puritanical vein that runs through our country when it comes to sex and sexuality that, you know, sex is dirty and it's bad and it's wrong and you should save it for marriage, which sounds horrible. Um, and um, we don't talk about sexual pleasure or education really in any way. So it's this strange split between uh, this highly pornographic world we live in and then a world where we don't talk about sex at the same time. And so when people hear sex addict, they think pedophile, they think sex offender, they think they should hide their children and run. They don't realize that it's their next door neighbor, their best friend, their doctor, their son's teacher. Um, that these, you know, that it's just people that are struggling with this issue. Um, and it's a very, very painful issue. We make fun of it and we don't have compassion for people that struggle with sex addiction. So that's why you are terrified. You know, if somebody's sober in AA, everybody, you know, it's high five and congratulations. But when it comes to sex, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's not talk about that. Yeah. So. What was the response you got? A, a lot of positive response. I was shocked at some of the people, people I haven't spoken to in years, people who mm. th- that reacted to some of some of that, so especially to the SAA chip. It was overwhelming. I mean, honestly, right, right after uh, Meadows, when I started hitting three-month and six-month um, sobriety milestones, I started kind of sharing my experience on my social media, and I wrote a couple blog posts, and the overwhelming response of people is what led me to do this show. Because I, I realize that people will come out of the woodwork oh, to be wow. able to talk about this stuff because 
people want to talk about this. They're just terrified to start the conversation. Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, they'll do it in groups and they'll do it in meetings when it's anonymous and private. But to do it publicly, everybody's afraid to come out and do it. And I mean, just look at all the celebrities that have gone to treatment and not one person has really ever come forward. You know, the way Betty Ford did and said, hi, I'm an alcoholic. Um, Betty Ford liberated a lot of people, especially a lot of women uh, when she came forward. But typically celebrities go to treatment and then they kind of slink away and they don't ever want anybody to know about it um, unless they've been caught or outed in some way. It's really interesting you say that because, and you know how it is at the Meadows. I had a couple of celebrities in my small group Mm -hmm. and we remained just extremely close friends today. Right. A couple of these guys. And I, I just once one time mentioned to both of them, Hey, you should come on my show. And I just got this glaring, like, you know, that's not for me, right? That's right. Like, I'm not coming on there. You can't use my name. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, oh, okay. Well, because the rest, of that, the rest of that uh, <laughs> sentence is because it would ruin my career and therefore yeah, my, my livelihood. My, yeah. My band or my, my, or whatever it is. And the band, that's the thing that really gets me. Like you're a rock and roll. It's a locker room. You're mentality. a rock and yeah, roll yeah. musician. Isn't it all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Um, and so it's embarrassing or shaming to say I'm a sex addict. It's like what rock and roll historically musician hasn't been, which isn't fair. I know not everybody is, but, and, and to say like, I'm sober um, from exhibiting myself to women or using women like they're Dixie cups. Wouldn't that be a great thing for a rock and roll musician to say? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just funny that, you know, there's a slogan for that sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And yet, if you're sober, you don't want to let anybody know that. Yeah. So what what about, I feel like there's this dynamic that exists in the sex addiction space that doesn't exist in the, how do I say this? Anheuser-Busch does not hate AA. And right. the mafia does not hate Narcotics Anonymous. But oh, that's interesting. There's this thing that exists between the porn industry and Hollywood and the people that use sex to make money. Uh-huh. And then this, this recovery community, there's just this f- friction that doesn't exist between industry and recovery in the other addictions, I think. And I don't, I can't put my finger on that. I think that's really astute. I think it goes back to everything we've been talking about, that it has to do with shame, that you're a pariah if you get caught doing what everybody's doing. I mean, look at what happened with the Me Too movement. You know, these men were exposed, especially, you know, someone like Harvey Weinstein, who was a predator. I don't know that I would even call him a sex addict. I mean, he could have been sexually compulsive, but he was definitely predatory. Everyone wanted to distance themselves immediately from him because they don't want to be associated in any way, shape, or form, even though they've probably done things that he did, um, maybe not as often or as egregiously. And so I think that's what goes on there is that no one wants to say, I have that problem. Because again, they will be shamed and their careers can be ruined. And, you know, there's that, that still that conservatism that I was talking about before. Where's the boundary between, so I go to church, I'm Southern Baptist. I go to, I'm a Christian and I, I, my faith has been a really big part of my recovery. And, 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 and that's a new thing for me. when I was at the Meadows, I 
I told my small group, I was like, I don't believe in a higher power. I'm not going to believe in one. You can stop telling me to believe in the group as the higher power. Let's just get on with making the lists and doing the work. And I, I came around, uh, you know, a few months after recovery because a couple of people reached out to me and, and, and really helped me out. And, you know, so I, where, how do we, what does the relationship need to be between uh, faith, between the religions and the, maybe a healthy view of sex? Because, you know, what they're, what they're, what they're preaching at the church is, is one type of sex. And, and what, what, what the researchers are saying is healthy as a different type of sex or maybe different kinds of sex. What do we, how do we bridge the relationship between the recovery community and the church on this topic? If, if you even can. Yeah, I don't know because, you know, a lot of religions ascribe to some very um, outdated ways of thinking about sex and sexuality because pleasure is generally not in the equation. It's more about sin. It's more about not experiencing the pleasures of the corporeal body. And every religion has different ways of um, packaging that. And I don't, I don't know how to speak to that. I just know that in recovery circles, my agenda from the beginning of my career in 1998 was the question of how do we help people restore their sexuality to something good and true and beautiful for them? And so what one person considers erotic and exciting and fun is different than what somebody else will, even within a faith community, I think. And so I think when we stop labeling sex as dirty or sinful and start to recognize that there's a quadrant of the body that does not get talked about, it's not educated about. I mean, imagine like if no one ever told you about dental hygiene and you just didn't talk about your mouth or what was inside there because your tongue's got a lot of nerve endings. The clitoris has a lot of nerve endings, but we don't talk about that. Um, It's just kind of crazy to me that um, we've so divorced ourselves from the pleasure of the body and that somehow that's not godly or that's not divine, then why were we given these bodies uh, and, and why do they operate the way they do? So I think there's a long way to go. And I think probably each individual church community has to build and change those, that ethos from within. And not just church, but, you know, certainly uh, synagogues or temples of other types of religions as well. Uh, That's fascinating. Uh, Well, look, I don't want to, I think we're kind of getting towards the end of our our time here. That was a, I think that's a really great place to leave it. I'm, I learned a lot. I got to ask a lot of questions that I have had on my mind about this thing that I'm still relatively new at Mm -hmm. this recovery thing. You know, it's been almost a year and a half, but it's, it still feels new. Right. Sure. Of course. I'm not. I, I, it's hard. It's so hard sometimes. It's so hard sometimes. Yeah, it's uh, very. You know, sometimes it's easy. Right, right. Well, you've got a ways to go still at a year and a half. That's a great oh, yeah. accomplishment. But you'll be in a different place in two years, three years, five years for sure. And I really appreciate that you're putting yourself out there the way you are, Stephen. And um, I'm hoping the people that listen to your podcast get the help they need. Yeah, I mean, there's really two goals here. One, I think if we share our stories other people will react and feel like they can share. Other people will also feel like they can go get help because they, they, they hear the sharing. Uh, I also think that there's this creation, I guess, I guess the long-term game plan for me is just to create this database of conversations that I would love it in three years. If there were 30 
podcasts that have been recorded on this topic of sex addiction. And if you are struggling with sex addiction, it's just come to this site, listen to these conversations, and you will find something in here that might help you. Great. So whether it's alcohol or gambling or sex or jogging or, or whatever it whatever it may be. But yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. I'm really grateful for you doing this. And yeah, I'm, I think this will help a lot of people. I think that people will listen to this and whether they go get help tomorrow or whether in five years when their life becomes unmanageable, they realize, hey, you know, I've already heard this before. I know that you can get help and I know where to go. Then we've accomplished our mission. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Katahakis, for coming on the show. I, I, like I said, I really believe that this conversation will be a resource and will be helpful to many people uh, in the near term and in the long term. Uh, I, I'm really grateful for our listeners for being here today. We want to hear from you. Uh, we'd be grateful to get a, a like, a subscribe, a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're using. Uh, and even more so, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your feedback on the conversations and the content. You can connect with us on social media, which is all linked in the show notes. And you can connect with us on our website, which is just stigmapodcast.com. And we are really grateful to have you here and look forward to being with you next week.